Greetings, everybody. We are here live at C2 Montreal with the lovely Dr. Carl Marsak. Um, I would love if you could just give us a little bit of a 101 on uh, who you are. Oh, sure. Yeah. How do you describe yourself? <laughs> it's, it's a great question because uh, I've, uh, I've had kind of an interesting journey to, to come to a place like this. So uh, I'm a physician by training. So I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, I did fellowships in neuroscience for several years. Uh, and I was really interested in the patient-doctor interaction and how empathy and the relationship had healing power beyond medications and surgery and laying on of hands. And along the way, someone said, hey, Carl, why don't you go to the MIT Media Lab? Uh, and I went. And they were doing some amazing things. Um, and, and at this point, it's sort of the late 90s, early 2000s. And they were building essentially the first wearable sensing devices. Right. So they were taking handheld computers, putting sensors in it. And I was like, wow, you just built a wearable multi-sensing platform. Let's, let's talk. Let's right. play. So we were fast friends. And we started measuring uh, things like negotiations. Could we predict who was going to win a negotiation just based on the sensors. Wow. Uh, poker, could we tell if someone was bluffing? Um, and uh, speed dating, could we tell if the woman was going to ask for the guy's phone number? Uh, and we were able to do that. And so uh, along the way, someone said, hey, um, do you want to start a company? Uh, and I said, sure, why not? And it started off part-time in 2006, uh, started a company called Interscope Research, and that was... Uh, no, Dr. Dre. I, I take no, no, no. That, that was and that was uh, that was purchased by Nielsen in right. 2015, and now I'm the first chief neuroscientist at Nielsen. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's funny because the theme here, the, you know, this year is collisions. Right? Ah. You just talked about two, uh, and especially transformative collisions. That idea that you met someone and then suddenly, like, you were taken into a new plateau and a new arena. Kind of describe, at least from a medical standpoint, like the psychology of collisions and when there's an excitement that happens between two or more people. Yeah, well, I, I think the right word, an operative word there is excitement, right? You know, so I think when, when, when two people or, or two groups uh, that, that share an idea and there's an energy to that and it's, and it's palpable, um, turns out it's also measurable, uh, that that can lead to all different kinds of uh, direction and, and new ways of, of thinking. And what I loved about the MIT Media Lab coming out of the medical world where everything is very structured, you know, when you're training in, in medical school and residency, you know, you know where you're going to be, how long you're going to be there, what time you're going to go, what time you're going to leave. Um, and then you enter this world where it's this combination of uh, expansive creativity, but sure. also the reductive power of science and engineering in one space. And for me, that was just really cool. But what they lacked was access to real problems. So when you're thinking about ideas in a bubble, um, you can go off in all these different directions, right. but you don't know if it's going to land somewhere practical. So I always describe it as like, well, I, I had all these problems and access to problems, but no solutions. And they had all these solutions and no access to problems. So, so I think that helped create like that two puzzle pieces coming together. Yeah, and they really yeah. fit nicely. And, and it was very collaborative. And, um, and, it, and it worked out well. What happens, because obviously, you know, we all experience some form of that, whether it's the, you mentioned dating or creative collaboration. What happens in the brain? Like what collisions happen in the brain, like physiologically or scientifically that whether synapses fire, obviously I have no idea what I'm talking about. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> um, you mean at, at that moment of transformation? Yeah, the, mo like the moment the of like, journey? I don't know. There, I, I, I sort of refer to it as a goosebump moment, right? There's a, there's a time I may be like excited and we're talking or I'm thinking about an idea, but then there's a moment where I was like, 
oh shit, like now um, the goosebumps are happening, but what's the physiological response that's going on inside the, you know, a, a person's head or their body at, at, that, at that point of inflection, I guess? Yeah, so um, I think we could sort of use our conversation right now as, as an example, right? So um, when, when someone's alone and thinking by themselves and in their own head, they're kind of going on their own journey. But when you're interacting like we are right now, we're kind of co-creating. And there are moments when uh, literally our, our, our physiology, our, our heart rates and our, uh, the electricity in our hands and our brain waves are actually going to line up and then they're going to separate and then they're going to line up and then they're going to separate. And to the extent that they line up more frequently, we're both going to feel like, wow, that was kind of a cool connection. And, you know, we literally use that language, right? Like, wow, we had a connection versus, you know, I didn't really connect with that person. Right. And I think that that language really reflects uh, what we now know about the, the brain and body's response to human social interaction. It's very powerful. It can align in really amazing ways to the extent which you can't really tell one person's physiology or, or brain signature from the other wow. in, that, in that moment. Yeah. Um, but they're brief. You know, it, it doesn't stay there. So we come in and out of this, this synchrony. Um, and, and I think that is what we all sort of experience is kind of cool. That is that's super cool. Uh, I could nerd out about that all day. Uh, but we only have limited time. <laughs> um, so the other social experience, right, is television, right? We all sort of, the things we talk about, you know, who do we admire on television? What shows do we watch? What does your work entail at Nielsen, especially with that science of decision-making? Yeah, so, uh, so I, I have a, a really... A special role because I get to come to great conferences like this and 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 really try to promote what we do and and what consumer neuroscience is all about is taking tools and technologies from healthcare and academia and applying them to marketing and media research questions. Um, the bulk of what we do is help uh, our clients uh, who are large brands all around the world um, make better communications right. to break through the clutter of the modern media landscape. Right, yeah. everyone's more distracted than ever. Uh, people can watch what they want, when they want, where they want. And uh, how, how do you connect, not just with each other, but, but with audiences. Right. And so essentially we, we take the same principles that I was just describing to you, uh, how one-on-one how -on -one we connect and, and apply that to one-to-many. Right. And, and it turns out that uh, the same rules apply, right? You have to tell uh, great stories. You have to take people on an emotional journey. Uh, you have to have a message and you have to tie it to your brand. Right. Um, and, and that people really resonate with authentic messages um, that, that have an emotional purpose and that, that they can kind of, um, you know, feel like they're not being sold to. Yeah. No, that, that's an interesting point because there's a, there's a duality in, in your work, right? There's some people who say like, oh, you're just selling us more stuff. And there's others who say, no, you're actually providing value, right? The, the entertainment I consume, there's a value to it. But then there's also like CBS wants to make money. So where do you, is there an ethical balance there? And like, how do you navigate that? Yeah, well, this is a, a, a question I've thought about a lot over the years. So uh, first of all, there's, there's no buy button in the brain, uh, or at least we haven't found one yet. Uh, and we haven't really gone off and created... Uh, Sounds like your next product. Uh, just, uh, just, well, <laughs> trust me, if, if I had found it, I wouldn't be sitting here. Uh, but, um, but we also you know, haven't created consumers that are just automatons doing whatever we want. Uh, what we've learned uh, is that people really like I said, want to connect on that authentic level. So, so let me just put it this way. Um, when I went into marketing, I had this perception that marketers were authorities who use rational arguments to persuade people to buy things, right? And I think we've seen a shift. 
And that shift has been from authority to authentic, from rational to emotional, and from persuaders to engagers. Why? Because that's what people want. Right. And that's what the neuroscience tells us people want. So I think if anything, what we've done is sort of convince um, marketers to move away from just trying to trick people and persuade them to just, just be more authentic and, and try to connect with people. Oh, that's beautifully stated. Um, there's, um, th I guess there's also a balance between the, the media that we consume, like there's a healthy amount of content that we should consume and how we're attracted to it, how, like what engages in it, the reason my thumb is swollen from just <laughs> doing this. Yeah. Um, uh, have you discovered any sort of healthy balance between, you know, how much is enough and how much is not? And, and does your work reflect that in any way? Yeah, so, so let's be clear, that's a very different question. Sure, sure, sure. Right, right. Uh, so there's one is sort of, you know, uh, what, what are the ethics of what we're doing? And essentially, you know, we, we bring people into a, a lab, they sign a one-page consent, we pay them to wear some sensors and watch TV, right? Nobody gets hurt, and uh, I don't think there's any ethical sure. dilemma whatsoever. That said, I think what your, your second question is around, what is the impact of all this media transformation on our brains. And I do believe that we are fundamentally rewiring a generation of humans in an uncontrolled experiment like never before. <laughs> and and my, evidence, my evidence for that is that we are clearly changing our behaviors, our habits, yeah. right? And we know that with behavioral change comes brain changes, right? The two are, are synonymous. So then the question becomes, well, what is the impact of it? Is it good or is it bad? And I think the, the biggest challenge we have today from a media perspective is media multitasking, right? We're developing these habits around doing two things at once. Oh, I'm watching TV and I'm on my phone. Mm -hmm. You know, that by itself isn't a problem. But then when you're at work and you're working on something and you're checking your Facebook feed or you're looking at your text, right. what we know about multitasking after decades of research is that our productivity goes down. We are slower at processing the information, and we are less accurate. We feel more productive. And mm. we feel more productive because the brain's actually working harder. And whenever we're working harder, we send a signal to ourselves saying, well, I'm working harder, I must be doing better. And this is one of the many tricks of the brain. We're working harder, but we're actually working less better and less well. And, and I think the habit we're all developing, whether it's driving and checking your phone, yeah. or, or working and checking our or phone. This one, tapping your head and rubbing your stomach. Getting it's, swelling thumbs, right? right? You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think that's the insidious nature of it, and sure. I think we need to have a conversation about that. No, that's that, that's beautifully stated, and especially as as younger generations. I mean, I have a thirteen year old daughter, and well, I'm good like, luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she doesn't <laughs> even have a device yet, so it's like not smart. She well, she's been asking now. Right. Um, you also have twins. Yes. Um, what sort of neuroscience have you observed in twinning? <laughs> <laughs> like and, and has that changed your perception in any way uh, as far as your well i mean a couple of things i think um what what people talk about twins is they have this sort of special relationship um and i will tell you uh, the relationship that uh, uh we have a boy and a girl twin that they have with each other is very different and unique than they have with their older sibling um and and there's a kind of uh way in which they communicate without words that is sort of mind-boggling to me. Uh, and, you know, usually the second child develops language a little faster than the first one because mm. they have the older sibling. In our case, the twins are actually lagging behind. And I think it's because they have, this, they have their private little language with each other mm. and they communicate just fine. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes my five-year-old has to translate for us because <laughs> he's, he's in on it a little oh, bit. Oh, that's kind of cool, though. Yeah. Like, and it, I mean, it kind of goes back to the, where we started the conversation, though. It's like there's an invisible communication that's happening that's right. when two people interact. So... Um, 
Um, I'll be as they grow. I'm going to check in with you to see like okay. how you apply their science to to, to your work. Um, what did you want to be when you grew? Because I mean, when I look at your resume and it's Oxford and a Rhodes Scholar and MIT and just like your your my mother's very proud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this this couldn't have been you know eight year old Carl's fantasy for for a career, or was it? Well, uh, I, I, the quick story is, um, uh, I think it was about uh, seventh grade, the, the sort of prototypical uh, English assignment, you know, uh, write an essay on what you want to be when you grow up. Uh, and I really wasn't sure. Um, but my best friend at the time, uh, his dad was a doctor. And uh, he was thinking about being a doctor when he grew up. And I didn't really like the Dewey Decimal System. So we're in the library. This is back when you actually pulled books off a shelf. You, right. you remember that. Um, and, uh, and he had this stack of books on you know, how to be a doctor. So I picked one up and I read it. And I thought that your father had to be a physician in order for you to become a physician. I just thought that's the way the world worked. And the first sentence in this book said, you know, do you like people? I like people. Do you like science? I like science. Do you like helping people with science? Maybe you could become a doctor. And I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And I came home that night. I said, mom, dad, I'm going to medical school. They're like, sure, honey. Yeah, whatever. I was like, no, 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 I'm, right. I'm really going to do this. And, uh, and it was just, just one of these things because I, the one subject in school I liked was science. Um, but I liked applying science to problems and things in the world. It's beautiful. Um, way to live the dream. Thank you. So uh, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Everyone, this is uh, the lovely Dr. Carl. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll be back with another interview.